chapter 3, verses 9 through 18. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And from the book of Jonah, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. For you who are guests or visitors, we've just begun studying the book of Jonah. And Jonah is one of the uh, truly wonderful books, I think, in the Bible. You could read that book a dozen times, and you're always going to see new things if you allow God to open your eyes. But the amazing thing about Jonah is how relevant it is for today. And I think the other thing about Jonah is we are a lot more like Jonah than we want to admit. And uh, as we go through this, there's going to be some uh, of these sermons that I'm going to preach to you. They're going to challenge you. They're going to challenge your understanding of faith, your understanding of grace, your understanding of mercy, your understanding that the justice of God. And so I hope that you will see this as that kind of challenge, uh, that you won't feel that somehow I am preaching down at you, but that you will look at uh, Jonah, and each time that maybe you'll reread it after a lesson to see um, if what I'm saying to you uh, makes some sense and uh, maybe discover more and more. And so um, this morning, I'm going to just kind of continue with the very beginning of Jonah because um, it, uh, there's a lot to be thought of and, and to be gleaned. Our lesson begins, and the word of the Lord came to Jonah the prophet. Now, rarely did God ever call a Hebrew prophet to leave Israel and go to a Gentile city. But not just any Gentile city, mind you. He called Jonah to go to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. Now, that empire was one of the cruelest and most violent empires of ancient times. After they would capture their enemies, the Assyrians would typically cut off both legs and an arm. They'd leave the other arm and the other hand so that they could go by and shake the victim's hand in mockery as they lay dying. They regularly burned children alive. They forced family and friends and to take members of their, uh, of their family who had their heads decapitated, to put them on poles and to parade them down the streets. 
They pulled out prisoners' tongues and stretched their bodies with ropes so they could be flayed alive and their skins displayed on the city walls. This is the Syrian Empire. This is the people who lived in the capital city of Nineveh. Now, although God told Jonah to proclaim judgment against Nineveh, Jonah knew there would be no reason to go and send a warning unless there was also a chance of repentance. And that was something Jonah was not very pleased with doing. For Jonah, how could a good God, a just God, allow an evil nation like Nineveh that was also threatening and exacting huge taxes from his own chosen people, Israel, how could he even give even the merest experience of mercy to such a people? In Jonah's mind, how in the world could this be just? Now, if you think about this on a practical level, why would a military and cultural powerhouse like Nineveh that was oppressing Israel listen to someone like Jonah? How long would a Jewish rabbi have lasted in 1941 Berlin if he stood on the streets and called Nazi Germany to repent or face God's judgment. And the reality is just a few years earlier, if you read through the Old Testament, the prophet Nahum had said that one day God would indeed judge Nineveh for the evil that they have done. So in Jonah's mind, what possible justification could there be for this assignment God was sending him on? And so, God told Jonah to go east, and Jonah went west. Now, Jonah had a problem, not only with the job he was given, but he also had a problem with the one who gave it to him. Jonah concluded that because he could not see any justifiable reason for God's command, there couldn't be one. Now, when God's word doesn't gel or make sense with what we are hearing in our community, the values of the world, or make sense with what you want to believe or what you desire, how do you respond to God's word? At such moments, we have to decide, and we have to do this every day, will you believe and trust God's Word, or you will, what you do, what many churches are seeking to do today, try to make Scripture indeed say what you want it to say, or the other, only other opportunity or other option is simply to ignore Scripture, which is what Jonah basically does. You know, too often, like Jonah, if we can't see any good reason for God's commands, we just assume there can't be any. That was the thinking of Adam and Eve way back in the Garden of Eden. God said, you're free to eat of any tree in this garden. Eat of it freely. But if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, when you eat of that tree, you will die. Now, here's Adam and Eve. You know, probably the most beautiful tree in that whole garden was that guard, that tree right there. 
Isn't it always that way? The thing you can't have, that's the thing that looks the best. And so they looked at this tree and they thought, you know what? That fruit is very pleasing to the eye. Oh, it's got to be so desirable to eat. And you know what? God didn't give us a reason why we can't eat of that. What's wrong with why we can't eat it? And so Adam and Eve decided, well, if they couldn't think of a good reason why God gave that command, well, there really couldn't be one. And so they eat. Now, if you read Romans 1 through 3, Paul outlines two different strategies that all the world uses to actually run away from God. Paul says there's one group, who in this case are the Jews, or could easily be the Christians, who have God's word, and who seek to diligently follow God's word as we understand it, or want to understand it. And then there's the other group, the Gentiles, who don't care about God at all. They don't care what God says. They all have their own gods. And yet Paul says that both of these people, those who diligently try to follow and obey God's laws, those who try to be virtuous and good, and those who don't care and do what they want to do, they're both running from God. They both turned away. Now, this is also what Jesus tells us if you read the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. You see in the, prod- or the story of the prodigal, the younger son decides he's going to take his inheritance And he's simply going to leave the farm. He's had enough. He doesn't want to be under his father's control. He doesn't want his father's values. He wants to live as he wants to live. And so he takes off. And he leaves. On the other hand, the older son stays home. He does every single thing his father commands him to do. Complete obedience. But when his father has the audacity to honor that punk kid when he comes back home, that's not going to happen in this family again. And the older son explodes in self-righteous anger. You see, the older son believed if he were virtuous and good, why, he had paid his dues, and his father owed him for his virtuous living. In the same way, if we believe that we're virtuous and good, I mean, if we do what we believe is the right way to live, if we seek to obey God's commands, don't we in our hearts believe that God owes us to answer our prayers? Don't we believe that God owes us that he should bless us. We're trying to be good and faithful. Doesn't God owe us a good life? When God doesn't appear to be treating us the way we feel we deserve, I guarantee you, we will begin to act like Jonah. You know, eventually, Jonah decides to obey God and go to Nineveh and preach. But what happens? When God accepts the repentance, when God accepts the repentance of this vile and evil people called the Ninevites, 
Just like the older brother in Luke 15, Jonah bristles with self-righteous anger at God's grace and mercy extended to vile sinners. How do we respond? Is it right, is it fair that God can have mercy on whom you have mercy and wrath on whom you have wrath? The problem facing Jonah, and if we're honest, also facing many of us, is that mystery of God's justice and mercy, which ultimately can only be understood if we understand the cross. Everything about God only comes into the appropriate light when we truly understand the cross. You see, the cross tells us that God can show mercy and grace even to the vilest of sinners because through that cross, Jesus Christ paid the full price for all sins, not just the little ones of the righteous people like us. He paid the price even for the most heinous sins committed in history. But like Jonah, unless we can actually see the depth of our own sinfulness and our need to live wholly and completely by the mercy and the grace of God, we'll never understand how God can be merciful even to those evil Ninevites and yet still call himself loving, just, and good. Let me ask you. I mean, I could use many examples. I'm just going to use this one, because you're all familiar with it. How do you respond, because this truly happened, when you hear that someone like Jeffrey Dahmer repented and accepted Jesus Christ as his Savior and Lord and is forgiven? Now, We love knowing that God can save someone like Duck Dynasty patriarch Phil Robertson. Of course, was cleansed from his past sins of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. But do we rejoice? Do we rejoice if and when God extends grace and mercy to a man who raped, killed, and even ate his victims? Kind of sounds like the Ninevites to me. So, would God be truly just to do that? Can God really have mercy on whom he'll have mercy and wrath on whom he'll wrath? Is that really just? I've come to realize that while we may not want to admit it, we are all numbered with those who are listed in Romans 3.10. That's us. That's what Paul is saying. That's the law abiders. That's the law breakers. That's the Jews. That's the Gentiles. That's the Christians. That's the pagans. We're all in the same boat. Boy, that's a hard one. Are we going to believe God's word? Are we going to make it say what we want it to say? Or in this area, we're just going to ignore it? 
But you know what? It's only when we know that we're numbered with those in Romans 3.10 that the good news of the gospel truly is good news. Only if we know for sure that God is willing to receive through Jesus Christ all the downcast, all the outcast, all the sin defiled, all the wrong, all the wicked, all the sinful into his loving arms. Only if the sacrifice of Jesus Christ covers all sin, even as vilest of sinners, can you and I be assured that God's grace and mercy is unconditionally extended to us. This I know. God is just. God is merciful. God is gracious. God is loving. God is holy. Always. He can be no other. God can never act contrary to who he is. He can't lie. He can't steal. He can't cheat. He can't deceive. He can never act contrary to his character. Everything God does, everything, Every action is just, gracious, merciful, loving, holy, because that's who he is. And I'll tell you something else. The Bible's very clear on God cannot be mocked. You don't play games with God. So when God's word says that his grace covers all sin, And that his grace is open to anyone who truly repents and believes in their hearts that Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord. My friends, they will be saved. And I don't have to wonder if God can forgive and accept even a sinner like me. That was John Newton's discovery. A slave trader, an abuser of a whole race of people, discovered God's grace and said, how amazing, how amazing is the grace of God that he can forgive even a wretch like me. And that, my friends, is truly Very good news. Amen.